Good evening. As we've said all this year so far, to get through our His Word series, we have to do some things on Sunday night that coincide with what we're doing on Sunday morning. So we're not just looking at His Word on Sunday morning always, sometimes Sunday night, so we can get through the entire New Testament. And tonight we're looking at Acts 1, if you want to turn there. Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. I'll give you a second to turn there, and we're going to read. As we've also said this year, we want to read bigger chunks of the Bible. I think the big key in understanding Scripture is understanding context and understanding that there's one big story here. And as I've said before, I think one of our biggest mistakes when it comes to Scripture is we tend to pluck verses or hunt and peck, and uh, that's not good. So we want to take the whole story in. We want to read bigger chunks if we can. So let's look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. This first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood behind him. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, when I was in grade school, I, believe it or not, did some acting. I wasn't particularly good. I played Sherlock Holmes and Hound of the Baskervilles. I was Oliver Twist, and uh, I, I did these things. I enjoyed acting, I enjoyed doing this, but I wasn't particularly good at it, but I had a really patient teacher. And one thing that he taught me, and any of you that are involved in theater or know anything about theater, know that an entrance is a big thing. How you make your entrance is really important. And so you want to make sure that if it's, you know, whether it's a dramatic scene or a comedic scene, whatever it is, when you come onto the stage, you want to make sure that that entrance is smooth. If you're walking through a door, you want to make sure the knob turns and it opens. I mean, the worst thing you can do is make a clumsy entrance. That wasn't on purpose, of course. But if you also know anything about the theater, if you know anything about acting and the stage, then you know that your exit is very important as well, right? Exiting the stage especially if it's a dramatic scene, is very important. The last thing you want to do is turn to stomp out in a dramatic fashion and trip and fall or something, fall into the orchestra pit. You don't want to do that. And so how you come onto the stage and how you leave the stage is really important. And that's really what we're looking at here in Acts chapter 1. Jesus, on the biggest stage, made his entrance. It was a dramatic entrance. Conceived of the Holy Spirit born of a virgin woman. He certainly had stage presence, didn't he? I mean, here's a guy who exercised demons. He even, you know, controlled the weather. 
And now it was time for him to leave. And how does he do it? Well, in dramatic fashion, as we would expect. Notice again verses 9 through 11. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Okay, every indication here is that Jesus went up. Now, why is that important? Well, you may not think it is, but let's chase this rabbit for just a second. He was lifted up. A cloud received him out of their sight. Clouds are typically in the air. They were gazing intently into the sky. Why do you stand looking into the sky, the two men asked. Jesus had been taken up from them into heaven. I think I told you one time with my youth group, I was talking to them, and I, I said, uh, so where is heaven? And they all pointed up, and I said, you realize in China that's down. But that's where we think of heaven, right? You point upward, that's where heaven is. And scripture seems to indicate that heaven is up and hell is down. Now, is it really? Well, that's up for debate. I mean, Scripture has a way, and God has a way, of describing things for us in human terms that our finite minds can understand, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we should take it from that viewpoint. The Tower of Babel, though, was a failed attempt by man to reach up to God. Moses went up on Mount Sinai to talk to God. Elijah was taken up into heaven by God in a chariot of fire. We know that Paul talks about being caught up into the third heaven. I'm sure some of you have heard uh, uh, that statement described like this, that you have the first heaven, which is the clouds. You have the second heaven, which is describing space. And third heaven, of course, is the heaven that we think about, the heavenly realms. And so we could go further, but I think you get the idea. Throughout the Bible, we see this up-down concept. God is up in heaven, hell is down, the place of the dead is down. When you, when you die and go to hell, you go down and you go to the grave. We're here, and so we're either going up or down from here. Again, is, is that the way that we should take it, literally? Is heaven just a state or a realm, or is it up? We could get into that, and we could talk about that all day. But for our purposes this evening, it describes Jesus as going up. He came down. And what comes down must go up. I want you to notice something. If you go back to John chapter 16, begin reading with me in verse 5. It says, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I want to pick up on that little phrase there where he says, it, it is to your advantage that I go away. How in the world could it be to their advantage that he go away? They just got him back. They were better when he was with them. Now he's going away again? How could that be to their advantage? Well, it was to their advantage because Jesus leaving doesn't, doesn't mean that he is going to leave them empty-handed, right? He's leaving with them the helper or the comforter or the Holy Spirit. How is that to their advantage? 
You see, he had to go. He had to go to the cross or else salvation would not be offered. But he mentions his leaving as being advantageous. And the reason why is because it would mean the arrival of the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Still, wouldn't it have been better if the Holy Spirit, excuse me, if Jesus had stayed with them? No, not necessarily. What could the Holy Spirit do for them that Jesus couldn't do? Well, for one, the Holy Spirit could be with them at all times. Jesus chose to be limited in his humanness. He chose to be confined and limited in that human body. But now the Holy Spirit would be left with them. The Holy Spirit would dwell within them. It would be with them wherever they went. Look at Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and following. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So the apostles were going to benefit on the first-hand personal experience of the Comforter. They had seen Jesus, they had spent a considerable amount of time with Jesus, following Jesus, listening to him both pre- and post-resurrection. They knew what the Old Testament prophets said concerning the Messiah. Not only that, they had seen it come to fruition. They heard Jesus' promises and predictions. They had seen them fulfilled with their own eyes. And now they were to go out and spread the gospel. But here's the neat thing. Anytime God sends a new word, he doesn't send it without power. You notice that? God sent a new word through Moses, but he also sent the miraculous with Moses. How would they believe me, right? And he sent him miracles to go with them. When he sent Jesus, the word, he sent a new word, he sent miracles with him, right? For what? To confirm the word. Anytime God sends a new word, he doesn't do so without power. And so now the apostles were being sent, and they were being sent with the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean for you and me? Do we have power? Are we sent with power? First of all, let me ask you this way. Are we sent? You better nod your head yes. Are we sent with power as well? Well, not like the apostles, but what power are we sent with? The gospel, right? We have a word to share And with that word, we have the power of the gospel to go with us. As well as the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, of course. But here's something else to consider. When we talk about it being advantageous for the apostles that Jesus leave, something else you have to consider is how long was Jesus going to stick around? How long was he supposed to stick around? I mean, what he came to do was accomplished, right? He came, he lived, he died, he rose again. End of story. Hebrews 10, 11 and 12 reads, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Do you realize that in the tabernacle there were no chairs? Because the priests weren't allowed to sit down. 
because they had work to do. Jesus could sit down at the right hand of God. You know why? Mission accomplished. He did what he came to do. This wasn't a recurring thing like the priest had to do year after year. This was a one-time, once-and-for-all kind of thing. Therefore, he could sit. You ever watch a movie? Maybe you read a book, and the story is good, and you're reading through it, or you're watching that movie, and you're, you're really into it. You're on the edge of your seat, and it, it just, everything's flowing, and it's coming into view, and, and the plot thickens, and you know that the story is about to reach its climax, and then you have the end, and you walk away from the end of it going, wow, that was horrible. I mean, there's nothing worse than a bad ending to a good movie, right? Everything up to that point seemed to be good, and you really had high expectations for the ending. But the ending didn't deliver. I don't know why, but a few years ago, I watched Titanic. It's hard, it's hard to watch a movie that you know the ending, right? I mean, it's going to sink. You know that. I mean, there's no suspense there. But you watch the movie, and you watch that last scene, and you think, could they not have tied their life jackets together or maybe to that door and just kept buoyant, you know? I mean, and when he lets go, he's going to really sink to the bottom that quickly. I mean, was his pockets filled with rocks? I mean, I just wasn't buying it. I, it just, it seemed very melodramatic to me, and I just like, maybe that's just me. What we have with this story is truly unbelievable, and here's why I bring all this up. Jesus's ascension, though it was dramatic, and though it seemed like the perfect ending to the perfect story, folks, it's not the end. Jesus' ascension was not the end of the story. That's what he was trying to tell his apostles, and, and that's what we need to understand as well. The ascension's not the end. It's the beginning. This is where it all starts. This is where the church begins. This is where it all begins, right here, right now. Christianity, all of it had the beginning here, right here, as Jesus ascended. Does Jesus' ascension mean that he's not still active? Does it mean he's still not active and alive? No, of course not. You see, we are living this story. This is truly a stage play, if you will, where we are the actors assigned to the role of spreading the gospel. But this is real life, right? Not just a play, this is real life. We are the present day actors in this great drama directed by God that all started with God and Jesus and was handed down to the apostles and now has been handed down to us. Do you get that? The gospel was intended to be handed down and it's been placed in our hands. Jesus was sent, Luke 19.10. He was sent. Jesus had a clear mission to reveal the Father, to die for our sins, to seek and save the lost, to bring abundant life, to be a servant, and to do it all by the Father's authority. Luke 17, 18 reads, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Jesus was sent, the apostles were sent, and we have been sent as well. And you say, well, how do you know that? What you're reading in John 17, for instance, is directed at the apostles. What you're looking at in Acts is directed at the apostles. How do you know that this is for us? How can you say with all certainty that we also have been sent? Well, do people still sin? Is sin, is sin still present? Let me ask you this. Is there an expiration date on Christ's blood? So as long as there's still sin... And as long as we still have the blood of Christ to cover those sins, as long as there are still lost people in the world, and you better believe there are, 
then we still have a mission, right? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. My friends, sin is a disease that everyone has contracted and has a 100% fatality rate, if not repented of. If a person decides to remain lost, they will die in their sins. Fact. Can't deny that. Bible states that very clearly. So the mission is still there because sin is still present. There are still lost, and there are still saved people that have to go to the lost. Here's the deal. We have a divine mandate. The Great Commission says to go, and that is an action word. There is something that we must do. Why is it that the, the greatest responsibility of the church and Christians is often overlooked? I don't know. There's a lot of reasons probably. A lot of reasons people give, and we've talked about them on many occasions. And, and still, there are a lot of people who choose to be pew potatoes and don't go out and don't seek and save the lost. It does happen. But our number one responsibility is that we have a divine mandate. We are to go and make disciples. We are to be fishers of men, and this should be a fishy church. So we need to be casting, and we need to be reeling in. We have a divine mandate. We also have a divine message, and you know what it is. Our message is the gospel. Again, we have been sent with a word, and that word comes with power. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it has the power. You know the rest of that, right? We have been given power through the gospel. Our message is not the preacher. Our message is not, hey, we have, uh, we have great singing. Our message is not that we have nine great elders. All oh, that's great. That's not our message. Our message is the gospel. Always has been, always will be. We love the church for a variety of reasons. We love Oldham Lane for many reasons. And there are a lot of things that make Oldham Lane great. But we can't focus on those things at the expense of the gospel. If we love the church, then we will seek to grow the church. If we love the kingdom, we will seek to grow the kingdom. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is a message that everyone in the world needs to hear because it is a message that has universal application and it is a message that has a powerful potential to change any and every life for all eternity. So we have a divine mandate and we have a divine message, but you know what else we have? We have a divine mission, the Great Commission. Christ died for us in order that we might be true followers and die to ourselves and understand that this is not about us. As we said this morning, converted sinners make the best preachers. Are we active in our own little Jerusalem? Are we Timothys and Tituses in, in this little community? Are we seeking to be people who are growing the kingdom and growing the church are we seeking and saving the lost? Keep in mind that church isn't there to serve and to cater you. It is there to seek and save the lost. The church should be united in a mission to tell the story of salvation to a lost world. The harvest is plenty. We need more workers. We need laborers, not consumers. 
You know, the story is told of a little boy who was flying his kite. It was a very windy day, and he was flying that kite, and the kite got higher and higher as he unrolled the string until finally it got out of sight, got lost in the clouds, and he still hung on to it. He couldn't see it, but he knew it was there, and some guy asked him, how do you know it's still there? And he said, well, I can, I can feel the pull of it. And I think that describes us, or at least it should, as Christians. How do we know God is there? How do we know Jesus is there? We can feel the tug. We can feel the pull. Because here's the thing. We need to be a people who are constantly looking up. Constantly looking and waiting for Jesus. But also people who are, who are looking around as well. We're looking up, we're waiting for Jesus to return, we're anticipating that day that he will come to us or we go to him. But we're also looking around us until that day to make certain that we are seeking to save the lost. That we can help others find what we have. That we can carry out the mission while we wait. I think it was Jimmy who used to say, you know, two feet on the ground and two eyes towards heaven. Being sky watchers. Looking for and waiting for that day. But that doesn't mean we just sit. We have work to do. We have a divine mandate. We have a divine message. And we have a divine mission. We have been sent. Don't ever forget that. So, we close the message like this. Go. Go to small groups and have a good time, but go home and, and get, good, get good rest and then go to your job tomorrow and go to school and go to wherever it is you go tomorrow and seek to save the lost. And whatever you do, and whatever you're doing in your daily activities, remember what you're supposed to be about. It's been a good day. I hope you feel that way. I think it's been a great day. Any day that we have to gather together as a church family and worship our God is a great day. Use this day to propel you into the week. And let's live not just anticipating Sunday, but feeding off of Sunday and allowing it to control our week. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day, for this opportunity to be here, to be with one another. We thank you for this church family and the men who lead it. We thank you so much for blessing us in so many ways. But Lord, we know that we have a responsibility and we pray that we can be a blessing to others. God, we know that you are the one who truly grows the church, but may we go and plant and water as you provide the increase. Help us to be like Jesus in the world around us. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Caleb's going to lead us in a song. If you have a need tonight that we can help you with, please don't hesitate to come as we stand and as we sing.